I'm recording the introduction to the next interview after one of the most disgraceful weekends I can remember when it comes to the moral standing of the West. On Friday, the highest court in the world found that Israel was plausibly committing genocide. Then, instead of recognising that ruling and changing course, the United States and the UK and other Western nations have reacted by defunding the UN agency responsible for maintaining livable conditions in Gaza. It's totally abject, and it also begs the question, why? Why do Western countries give unconditional backing to Israel, even when their actions are, by any reasonable understanding, wholly indefensible? Earlier in this series, I spoke to David Waring about what he believes explains Britain's loyalty to Israel. He spoke about Britain's imperial interests and how they align with those of Israel. And he explained how he thinks those interests are the only real factor needed to explain British state behaviour with regard to the Middle East. There is also another popular explanation, though. It portends that Britain and other Western nations unconditionally back Israel because they are subject to a powerful Israel lobby. Of course, these two types of explanation are not mutually exclusive. It could be a bit of one and a bit of the other. To discuss Britain's Israel lobby, what it is and what it does, I spoke to Hill Aked, who wrote the book Friends of Israel, The Backlash Against Palestine Solidarity. As usual, the first half of this interview is available on the free feed. To listen to the full show, you'll need to sign up for free pound a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Hill Aked, um, welcome to Crash Course. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, let's start with the basics. What is the Israel lobby? So the Israel lobby, um, or as I call it, the Zionist movement, and I think we can talk about that terminology later, is a, a network of organisations that actively supports Israel. Um, it's not uh, one homogenous block. It's uh, a spectrum of different actors um, with a range of, you know, slightly different opinions that range from liberal Zionism to revisionist Zionism. But they do kind of cohere around um, Zionism as uh, as a political commitment to um, uh, Israel as a Jewish state and as a, and that's an ethno-nationalist commitment. And I think the other thing to say about them is that, you know, that they don't just lobby. So lobby, we tend to think of as a kind of elite influence, um, perhaps uh, making political donations to politicians, having private meetings. But actually, one of the reasons Zionist movement is a term I use in my book is that it's much broader than that. So we're talking about, um, you know, talking to media institutions. We're talking about setting up chairs of Israel studies at universities. There's grassroots activism to a degree, um, p- uh, political education, uh, digital campaigning, um, a whole range of other activities that are engaged in. So it's not not just lobbying. And the other thing to say is it's not just, I think some of the term lobby is a, is a kind of national term that we use in the domestic sphere only, but the Zionist movement is and always has been transnational from the start. And so, you know, you can't really understand the Zionist movement here in Britain without understanding it in the US and obviously, of course, in Israel. And I suppose, um, yeah, on terminology, so... I think the reason on my show, you know, on Navarra especially, I tend to talk about, you know, Israel advocates or people who are pro-Israel is because it seems a bit less encompassing than than Zionism. So Zionism, sort of the idea of a Jewish state. And I suppose to be to be very concrete, you know, I, I don't think someone who wants to end 
um, the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, go back to 1967 borders, have an Israel next to a viable Palestinian state. Um, you know, I think that would be someone I could work with. Um, I think I'd probably struggle to work with anyone who I think was traditionally part of the Israel lobby because I, I think of the Israel lobby as sort of, you know, directly or indirectly to some degree doing the work of the Israeli government. You know, they might not be you know in direct touch with the Israeli government, but they're sort of doing their bidding to some degree. And I feel like in theory, um, you could be, you know, a genuine liberal Zionist who does want liberation for Palestine, you know, within a, a viable Palestinian state next to Israel. I mean, how how would you respond to that? This question made me laugh, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that refusing to use the term Zionism or, or not using the term Zionism and not being willing to address, you know, what Zionist ideology is when it's, I think, the root cause of the, the genocide that we're seeing play out right now is is not being an ally to Palestinians. You know, the time for kind of this theoretical could be this and the hypothetical, I think, is I think is long gone, actually. And, you know, I take the example of Peter Beinhart as American commentator you may have heard of. He used to be uh, just what you said, a liberal Zionist. But he's actually now a critic of the Zionist movement because he realised and was, I think, brave enough to accept that politics shouldn't be about these sort of abstract hypotheticals, but should be grounded in concrete realities. And I quote him on my book as saying, at the end of the day, Zionism is what Israel does. And uh, what does Israel do? Well, from its inception, it's been practising discrimination dispossession, colonization, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and incremental genocide against the Palestinians, which we now have seen intensify into, into an all-out brazen sort of sped up genocide. And that's because Zionism, at the end of the day, is a settler colonial ideology. Its founders were very open about being a colonial movement. And the logic of all forms of settler colonialism is the elimination of the indigenous population and the accumulation of land. So, no, you can't be a Zionist and be an ally to the Palestinians, in my opinion. Um, I think anyone who's been paying attention can see that the post-1967 borders are, are utterly meaningless. The idea of a two-state solution is and has always been really a myth to kick the Palestinian liberation struggle into the long grass. Netanyahu has been very clear that he won't allow it. But even if he did, or if some other slightly less far-right Israeli leader did, which you know, I don't think they're gonna, it's going to happen. Would it even be desirable letting an ethno-nationalist state continue to practice apartheid, continue to obsess over the quote-unquote demographic threat that posed by Palestinians' mere existence between the river and the sea, and to continue to deny Palestinian refugees who were expelled from their homes the right to return to their land? That's not being an ally to Palestinians. So I think we need to engage in reality and concrete reality. There is one state right now and that state is an apartheid state as amnesty human rights watcher recognize and it's, it's currently perpetrating a genocide and the only alternative is to end the i think the zionist project through decolonization and that means we can't avoid taking a position on zionism but i think it is a form of racism i'm a proud anti-zionist and i'll keep using that that terminology of the zionist movement because i think uh, that's when we're, when we're going to see peace is when we see justice and that's when we're going to see uh, a free Palestine from the river to the sea. I suppose I'm more of a, a realist than a, I think you probably can have peace without justice. Um, I, I think that that tends to be how international conflicts end. Um, so I, you know, pe people, people say, well, I'm, I'm personally agnostic about one state or two state. I, I think there's probably not going to be any perfect solution. Um, I'm a, I mean, we're going to talk about John Mearsheimer sort of later, but I'm more of a John Mearsheimer style, style realist than sort of the more 
um, you know, traditional radical leftist position, which is no justice, no peace. I think in, in many situations you do end up having peace without justice, as, I've, as I say. I guess it depends if you talk about po- positive peace, you know, the, the presence I would say positive piece the presence of justice rather than just the absence of conflict. I suppose I think the absence of conflict is in its is in a way really like not to be taken for granted. I think that the absence of conflict can you know allow for the flourishing of life in a way that waiting for justice might not do. But we are at risk of sort of diverging because I do want to talk about Britain's Israel lobby. Maybe maybe we can come back to this debate sort of towards the end of the conversation. Um, but yeah, in very concrete terms, um, who are the key actors in the British Israel lobby or the Zionist movement? Uh, yeah, so I mean, as I said, I think you can't really understand the Zionist movement here in Britain without understanding the Zionist movement as a whole, and um, which helped to create the state of Israel and now, of course, supports it in Britain, in the US and, and elsewhere. So just a very quick point in history. I mean, the World Zionist Organization is founded at the end of the 19th century by Theodore Herzl. And it has affiliates um, around the world. So here in Britain, we got the Zionist Federation of Great Britain and Israel, founded incidentally by Theodore Herzl when he came to visit Britain and felt that there wasn't enough support for Zionism within Britain's Jewish communities and wanted to change that. And out of the World Zionist Organization come three other uh, so-called national institutions, and they each have their own kind of uh, function as a sort of division of labor. So the Jewish National Fund is set up in 1901 to kind of colonize Palestine, essentially, um, and uh, <clears throat> the JNF UK is its British branch, British, British affiliate. Finally, sorry, not finally, but secondly, the Karen Hay Assad is the foundation fund, which is a fundraising body. And its its British arm used to be called the United Palestine Appeal, and it's now changed its name to the United Jewish Israel Appeal. And it's mostly about fundraising. And then finally, the Jewish agency is the body which encourages Aliyah or Jewish immigration to Israel, um, which also has a UK affiliate. And those latter two are founded, I think, quite importantly during. Um, the 30-year, near 30-year period in which Britain ruled Palestine uh, under the mandate. So just, I, I want your listeners to appreciate just how intertwined the, the growth of Zionism is with British imperialism and, and how that really gives us a moral responsibility to, to confront that history. Um, so those actors remain the backbone of the Zionist movement, but today there's a bunch of different groups. So in the 1950s, I think 57, Labour Friends of Israel was founded in Parliament around the time of the Suez Crisis to shore up support for Zionism at a kind of a, a critical moment. Conservative Friends of Israel comes later in 1974, um, founded actually by a man whose biographer compared his views to, to Enoch Powell. Um, then you've got groups like Bicom, which is a major group which focuses on um, the media, um, you've got groups which focus on law and the legal sphere, predominantly, I think, the most notably UK Lawyers for Israel. Um, you've got uh, a bunch of groups which are active in sort of various arenas of civil society. Um, so um, there's these kind of uh, what I call in my book astroturfed as opposed to grassroots groups because some of them have been set up um, in part with the support of the Israeli embassy. That's not to say they're not real kind of grassroots groups to a degree and that they have people who are active, but they've had the state involvement as well. Um, and then there's sort of newer groups that, that are quite hard right, like the campaign against anti-Semitism is one. <clears throat> and finally, there's sort of identity-based groups um, like Christian Zionist groups. So there's um, Christian Friends of Israel and Christians United for Israel, which is a spin-off of the big US group. It exists here in Britain. And then there are Jewish groups as well who 
you know, first it's important to say they do laudable work for Jewish communities. So I'm thinking of the board, Jewish Leadership Council, Union of Jewish Students here. It'd be wrong to say they are exclusively and solely Israel lobby groups. But at the same time, we can't exclude them from being part of the Zionist movement when they say themselves, we lobby for Israel, we're fighting anti-Zionism, we're fighting uh, BDS as well. So I think they can be considered part of it as well. And yeah, I, I suppose from my perspective it is those groups that don't officially call themselves you know we believe in israel or we're the friends of israel it's the groups such as the board of deputies you know who claim to be the representative body of british jews or the jewish labor movement who say they're the representative body of of, of jews in the labor party because they are taken much more seriously you know once you're speaking to the bod or the or the jlm sort of you are you are talking to an ethnic minority group or their representatives and you have to give that due weight sort of I, i feel like that's how it's dealt with in the media and, and they're not so much treated as as a representative to some degree of a state or part of the Israel lobby, but as an ethnic minority group that's complaining about racism. And I suppose, I mean, to me, it's those ones which are most effective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I hear what you're saying is that when you muddy the waters between um, what is Israel advocacy and what is, you know, advocacy for the interests of an ethnic minority, um, people get very confused. And I think it comes back to this thing of needing to you know, distinguish between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, which we may talk about later. Um, and, you know, I quote some interesting statistics in my book where actually surveys of Jewish communal opinion in this country around, like, whether Jewish communal organizations should really be doing Israel advocacy or whether that should be left to the Israeli embassy, um, then, you know, there's quite a lot of diversity of opinion. So, and and, and as you kind of alluded to, I think that the, the board who claims to be, a, a, which claims to be a representative of the Jewish community, um, ha- Actually, I mean, I trace the history of my book. It has never been, or his, it's historically was originally anti-Zionist um, and uh, Zionism was a, a kind of fringe opinion in the Jewish community until kind of quite understandably in the wake of a lot of persecution in Europe culminating in the Holocaust, people felt perhaps, you know, a great sense of insecurity and felt turned towards Zionism as a, a, a hope for a safe haven and having a Jewish state. But I think what we're seeing again now is a rise in uh, Jewish people, especially in the younger side of the Jewish community and indeed in younger generations in general, across all demographics, turning away from Zionism increasingly. So I think, you know, uh, uh, it's it's historically contingent and whether politicians want to admit that or not, they know just as well. And you can see this even more clearly in the US where, you know, Jewish Voice of Peace has been one of the main actors in the solidarity movement. So the lie that kind of, you know, support for Israel uh, and the Zionism and the genocide that's going on right now is somehow a Jewish community position is like, you know, actively dangerous for Jewish people. And it's just not accurate. Is it not accurate? I mean, actually, let's take a step back before I get you to ask that, because I've just realised that the Board of Deputies, to me, it's a phrase I come across a lot, especially sort of um, as someone who was involved in sort of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, but it's it's not a particularly self-explanatory name. So could you explain just for, for the audience what the Board of Deputies is? Sure. So the Board of Deputies uh, of British Jews um, is uh, a communal organisation founded, I think, in 1860. I think it's, it's the, certainly the oldest British Jewish um, organisation. Um, it claims to be um, a sort of parliament for Jewish community and um, so-called deputies are elected from various synagogues. And yeah, it's done a lot of, you know, it's done a lot of advocacy work for the Jewish community in this country, uh, representing communities' interests, fighting anti-Semitism, all kinds of things. It also, for a long time, um, has had an international kind of division, which um, has been engaged in Zionist um, uh, kind of advocacy as well. So that's the board, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose the question I was going to ask is, I I feel like sometimes it's a bit too easy for 
well, the left in this particular situation sort of to say, well, yeah, the, the BOD might say this, it might say this anti-Palestinian thing, but that's not representative of the community, right? But And it's obviously not representative of the entire community. Obviously, there are loads of Jews who are you know, very pro-Palestine. And as you said, there'll, there'll be some who are anti-Zionist, there'll be others who are just you know very unhappy with the current um, level of harm being done in, in Gaza. But it's not you know, it's not entirely untrue that they are to some degree representative of Britain's Jewish community. Now, we could say this about any ethnic minority community and sort of there being foreign policy preferences that that group might have. But I wonder if we maybe need to be a bit more honest that actually, you know, ethnic minorities do sometimes come with sort of foreign policy preferences. And, and that's fine. There's nothing sinister about that. But, you know, we we should sort of take that seriously in these discussions as opposed to sort of brushing over it. Do you see what I mean? Well, no, I totally accept that the, the polls, the statistics show that there is a majority kind of certainly a, a affiliation to Israel, support for Israel. Um, and in, even if it'll be in a kind of latent sense, you know, you, what you haven't seen for many, many decades is massive rallies on the streets where British Jewish communities come out and support for Israel. And what you have seen is decreasing support. So I'm not saying it's not still a majority position, but we know for a long time it's been decreasing and you have organizations like we believe in Israel, which is a spin-off of, from Bicom that I mentioned earlier, found, uh, run by Lou Gaykus, who's a non-Jewish Zionist, where he actually says explicitly, you know, my job is to kind of try to restore a lost age of active Jewish grassroots support for Israel. So that's the context. I'm not denying that there's, yeah, a general tendency. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not going to ask you to read Luke Gaykus's mind. So again, to, to many of our audience, I'm sure his name will be familiar. Um, he is sort of one of the most prominent organisers on the right of the Labour Party. Um, he's now on the NEC, which is sort of the, the ruling body um, of the Labour Party. So an influential guy. And um, he's also director of this NGO called We Believe in Israel. I mean, as you say, he's, he's, he's not Jewish. And I wonder, you know, I don't want to ask you to read his mind, but I, you, 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 you've been studying these people for a while, right? So, so what is it that gets someone like Luke Akers to decide I'm going to devote my professional life to lobbying for, for Israel? You know, it's, it, it might not seem... You know, it's, it's, it's somewhat confusing to me. I mean, do, do you have a sense of that? Um, I, I mean, it's quite a challenging question to be asked to explain why some people are... Yeah, of course. Uh, ...certain, you know, right-wing persuasions, you know, but I think it what we are seeing increasingly is the lines crystallising that, you know, support for Israel, support for Zionism is a right-wing political position associated with other right-wing political positions. That didn't used to be the case, right? There was this myth of Israel as, you know, the socialist... Uh, you know, utopia almost, and you know the kibbutzim are going to free us all. And and um, actually, uh, increasingly, especially with decolonization happening around the world, there was an increased understanding that um, Israel is a, a highly militarized and nuclear weaponized state. And and you know, also with Israel's turn towards neoliberalism and kind of economic policies of the seventies, you know, that changed as well. Um, so, as you say, he's on the right of the Labour Party, and the right of the Labour Party supports Israel. The the, the kind of fault lines on the on, within the Labour Party around Palestine are, are in the middle. It's not a, you know, perhaps in the Corbyn era, it was a sort of Labour versus Tory position, and now it's uh, it's something which splits the party again. Can I get you to talk about Christian Zionism as well? So this is sort of people talk about it because it's you know it shows that Zionism isn't just a Jewish thing. Of course, of course, it's not. But I mean. It, it's somewhat confusing to me. What is a Christian Zionist? What do they believe? Well, Christian Zionism is a, a deeply conservative philosophy, political philosophy that's um, often tinged with uh, anti-Semitism. The basic tenet of it is that when all the Jewish people are gathered in the Holy Land, the second coming of Christ will occur. 
And um, that coloured a lot of early British political support for Zionism. So Arthur Balfour, who infamously issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which was not supported by Edwin Montague, the only Jewish member of the cabinet at that time, was a Christian Zionist. Just 12 years before, he'd been prime minister and he had, um, under his watch, um, the, the Aliens Act in 1905 was passed, which was explicitly intended to prevent uh, Jewish um, immigration to Britain who were, when people were fleeing pogroms in, in Russia and Eastern Europe. So there's, that's an example there of how, you know, that, that kind of Christian Zionism and anti-Semitism can really coexist quite quite um, consistently. And again, I mentioned John, John Hagee or John Hagee, I'm never sure how you pronounce it, but the evangelical preacher who's um, a, a televangelical, he's, a, you know, a very big in America and actually claims to have the biggest grassroots um, uh, Israel organization anywhere in the world with up to a million followers, um, you know, is, is another strong example. And that you see that played out again and again. And, and the tragic kind of reality of um, Israel's position in the world today is that Netanyahu has been happy to be allied with uh, people like Trump, people like Bolsonaro, people like Viktor Orban in, in Hungary before, who, um, again, have like sort of adopted these uh, anti-Semitic pol political positions. But as long as they're Zionists, not all of them Christian Zionists, of course, but a, a lot of that, you know, that's the more important thing. So you can see the difference there. And I suppose a distinction, it might be helpful for me to draw. So not every Christian who is a Zionist is a Christian Zionist. You, because a Christian Zionism is sort of a particular ideology about Jewish people returning to the Holy Land and that being some sort of biblical prophecy. But you might also have people who don't believe that. They're, they're just Christians. And for whatever reason, they're supportive of Israel. Maybe they're right wing. Um, maybe sort of in the early 20th century, they didn't want Jews to come to to Britain or whatever country um, they were in. So it's, do you see what I mean? Not every Zionist who's Christian is a Christian Zionist. Is that Does that seem accurate to you? Yes, I suppose so. Um, I mean, just in the same way that there's, as I mentioned earlier, like a spectrum of Zionist political opinions, you know, Jabotinsky didn't necessarily agree with, um, you know, Ben-Gurion on everything. Um, but what, you know, what we're seeing now, you know, is... A, a genocide playing out against Palestinian people and those slight kind of gradations of opinion as really like fade into insignificance um, because right now it's a question of are you pro or against genocide and that's you know that's the question. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about the current Gaza war I know you know your book when it was written the focus was on boycott divest and sanctions which you know the target there being principally sort of Israeli apartheid so sort of the, the longer term structures um, now, obviously, you know, the focus is on an immediate um, genocide or potential genocide. Um, what has the Israel lobby, I mean, Britain especially, been focused on during the Gaza war? I spoke earlier about how those different you know, organisations just focus on different arenas of society. So they've been working, um, you know, in those arenas. So uh, the parliamentary groups, the so Labour and Conservative Friends of Israel have been um, certainly active there as normal. It's actually hard to know because... Uh, there's a very dire lack of transparency, particularly around conservative friends of Israel, as to how they operate. Um, but we do know, for example, and I lay out all the evidence of this in my book, that both have a very close relationship with the Israeli embassy, you know, and effectively serve as a mouthpiece for uh, Israeli embassy, the Israeli government's justifications for genocide and um, uh, and, and, and to keeping kind of... Um, political support, maintaining political support within parliament. I'm a bit more like able to sort of speak to how uh, an organization like Biocorp or We Believe in Israel has been, um, 
has been behaving because, you know, I get their daily bulletins every, um, yeah, I get their daily bulletins via email. And, and, and that's something that actually has, is a practiced sort of infrastructure because whilst this is the worst by far um, instance of, uh, you know, Israeli state violence that we've seen ever, there has been, you know, there have been episodes of slightly, of less intense state violence, you know, um, you know, repeatedly over the last 70 years, 75 years, right? And the, so this infrastructure for um, um, building these reciprocal relationships with journalists and then um, issuing these kind of opportunities to provide like talking heads and, and again, like basically spreading the Israeli government's um, uh, message is a practice technique. And, you know, Luke Akers, for my PhD on which my book was based, you know, said to me, yes, I always speak to the Israeli embassy. He didn't want to tell me how often, but that's, you know, again, there's quite close state private networks here. I mean, there's still society groups like, um, I think the board and the embassy work together on this, um, you know, effectively a pro-genocide rally. Um, I think it was in Trafalgar Square. There was a march in Manchester. And, you know, notably, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, the kind of people that are attracted to that, Tommy Robinson, um, who's the real name Stephen Yaxley Lennon, the sort of far-right Islamophobic, um, I don't know, God for hire guy. He he turned up and wanted to wanted to be involved in that. And there's a reason that people like him and, and Richard Spencer, the white nationalists, kind of like are, uh, find Zionism and appealing because of its ethno-nationalist nature. And and actually, conversely, a group like Naamod, who would be a group we could debate whether they're anti-Zionist, non-Zionist, a broad enough church to, you know, perhaps have some Zionists in it, but like be anti-occupation, as you were talking about. They tried to go on the like march against anti-Semitism and were not allowed. So um, is a good example of the, the kind of uh, deep kind of conflicts within Jewish community over over Israel and Zionism. Um, and then finally, I guess like legal groups, so UK UK lawyers for Israel is worth mentioning. It's been very very active in you know, issuing briefings, like justifying or saying it's not genocide or, or um, saying what, saying this is really self-defense, but also threatening a lot of actors. So threatening councils, if they're not removing Palestinian flags fast enough, threatening universities when students pass BDS motions and trying to attack and demonize everyone everywhere who speaks up for Pal Palestinians. There was a recent controversy with uh, the British Medical Association and that UK Lawyers for Israel plays a really critical role in sort of whack-a-mole activity for any Palestine solidarity in Britain. And let's actually, because I'm, I'm not sure if we, we, we have spoken in detail about BICOM. I think it's going to come up a lot during this conversation. So BICOM, I think, is sort of the biggest um, Israel lobby group in, in the UK. It stands for Britain, Israel Communications and Research Centre. Um, actually, that doesn't make sense that it would stand for that. That's what their subtitle is. What does it stand for? It does. It's oh, it's British it does Israel for Communication. British Israel yeah, Com. Just not the Research yeah, Centre. Yeah. It's not a good acronym, is it? Is it? But they, they're kind of on a backronym thing going on. Yeah, but they don't you know you won't see someone on tv saying this is you know xyz from bicom so do they do they sort of assert their influence a bit more subtly than that yeah i think the most effective you know sort of um political influence work is behind the scenes right you don't see it so some of the times we've understood what influence they've had is when there was one time where they accidentally leaked uh, uh, an email which was supposed to go to their um donors their funders to um, their media list, which talked about how they had given background briefings to, you know, the leader writer of the Financial Times and how they'd had unprecedented access to the BBC. So, no, you very, very, very rarely see a sort of BICOM spokesperson on the news, but um, uh, they, they're taking people on trips a lot of the time and um, that, that, and inserting their kind of the, the Israeli government's viewpoint, essentially, so that that gets at least 
um, at least a sort of half of the time on the sort of relevant television show on in the kind of column inches that you see in the newspapers. And I want to talk about some some sort of concrete wins um, that I think the Israel lobby have had since October the 7th and, you know, the, the start of Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Um, and I want to sort of go through them one by one and sort of talk about whether or not you think, you know, this happened without the Israel lobby, you know, doing some nudging or whether the Israel lobby would have been involved and if so, how. And so the first one, I think very significant, right, that Parliament hasn't voted in favour of a ceasefire. And when there was um, a ceasefire motion put to Parliament, both Labour and the Conservatives, you know, were whipped not to vote for it. So big win. There is uni-party support essentially for what Israel has done. Do you think that has something to do with successful manoeuvring by an Israel lobby? I think in all cases that, that you, you know, suggest as we speak about, trying to pinpoint singular moments, you know, when there has or there hasn't been the influence of like a hidden hand is a quite a limited analytical strategy. And of course, you know, we can point to some such moments. And I, I do point to some such moments in the book where, you know, the one that springs to mind is a funder to an Israel studies course at the university literally sent an email saying like, I think these people would be great for the job when, you know, that shouldn't, shouldn't really be happening. But I guess I'd come back to the point I made earlier about um, how Zionism is very, very deep-rooted within British political culture, um, and Britain has always been a supporter of the Zionist project. It doesn't need, you know, whilst obviously I think it's worth studying these groups and understanding them, we shouldn't kind of let the British state off the hook as if it's sort of somehow separate, and and it's only because, you know, Labour Friends of Israel have um, sent an email or made a donation or had a conversation that, that we have the outcomes that we have and that you've listed. So support for Israel has been constructed over time. And yes, it needs to be maintained, including by these groups, especially in the face of challenges uh, from kind of supporters of Israel. But like that power, especially at the top, doesn't always operate through kind of coercion. It's sometimes actually about the longer work of creating these political cultures, which lead people to then either self-censor or just to understand without needing to be told that saying X or Y will get them in trouble or might create a sort of quote-unquote controversy so that they don't actually need to be told. And that's, you know, the deepest form of power really, isn't it, to create that political culture. So yes, I think the Zionist movement, you know, it is influential and powerful in Parliament along with, of course, the embassy, and it does wield influence on the media, but we shouldn't see it as somehow kind of outside of those spheres. And it's really hard to trace, you know, methodologically, because I did this for my PhD, like, proving that lobbying has happened has influenced the outcome of a decision. It's just methodologically really, really difficult because, you know, transparency is an issue. You know, I think what's easier to do and more visible, and, and because, as I said, it's not always happening. It's not like it would have gone, the, you know, politician A was set on course A, but then was pushed into course B. It, it's much it's much more of a reciprocal relationship. But where we can see the kind of power at work, I think, is when we look more at civil society, where we're seeing Palestine solidarity initiatives emerge. So in... Um, universities, in civil society, in cultural arenas, and they are often actively forced to U-turn, to change course by downward repression from the Israel lobby or from the Zionist movement, and indeed from the British state. So that's my answer. I think, no, no, that's, I mean, I, I suppose, yeah, so, so in, in, in the list I put down, which I thought were other wins, so whenever there's a pro-ceasefire demonstration, the story gets diverted to be one about perceived anti-Semitism, not about what's actually going on in Gaza, um, the demonization of the phrase from the river to the sea, um, which has now sort of become, you know, journalists just sort of say it out of hand. Oh, and, and you think it's acceptable? And um, people are saying from the river to the sea, people are saying da 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 da. And then, you know, it doesn't even get picked up. That's just sort of said as a, as a given that that's a problem. 
But I want to focus on um, one other thing I had in my list because methodologically, I think this is probably is quite interesting because you could see such a clear change and the lobbying was kind of done in public. And this was two things which involved the BBC. So one was this huge campaign, you're not calling Hamas terrorists. And it was big campaign. Um, I, I do think sort of the official sort of Jewish organizations were getting involved and in saying Jewish lives don't, don't count or Jews don't count. Um, getting really annoyed at the BBC, putting them under loads of pressure. And the other was when it comes to um, the death toll in, in, in Gaza. And there was a change in both of those situations where on the news it became really clunky. Anytime they'd say Hamas, they'd say, Hamas, who are declared a terrorist organisation by the UK, the United States and other governments. And then when it came to the death toll, which I think is even more sinister, whenever they say, you know, 20,000 people have now been killed in Gaza, they have to say, according to the Hamas run, health ministry even though we know um i mean it was actually just uh, I, I saw on this week that actually the israelis are using the hamas not the, oh my god i just fucking in, internalized it there the the, the 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 israelis are even using the the gazan health ministry's numbers you know the un have said they're always accurate or always accurate enough so that to me seemed like a a conscious capitulation by the bbc in the face of what was actually public lobbying and I, I mean, could you talk about that? What you think, sort of, how you interpreted that? No, I think I think that's a fair point. I mean, I, when I I did read that one, I did think that's quite a, a concrete example. As you say, um, many organisations have been public about it. I'm sure that behind the scenes, the Israeli embassy will have been putting pressure in, in the BBC about that. I mean, know there are cases where it does that. And you know, if you could, you know, use freedom of information or something to get uh, the documents out of the BBC, or you know, had insider interviews. Again, it's just very hard to research sort of non-transparent opaque things like lobbying but you know yeah I think you probably you may well be able to evidence that like the change of language um you know was was because of of outside pressure uh, which as you say you know the BBC had chose to capitulate to um and that that's not a new thing you know they have the, the BBC has these language guides especially around Israel Palestine there's very long ones and they're always getting revised around like this is what you know this is the term we use for the um for the settlements, or this is the term we use for, you know, occupied territories. And that's been a terrain of struggle and contestation for a very long time. And um, the, the fact is that the power asymmetry we see with the Israeli military and the Palestinian people is is mimicked in the communications arena where the, the pro-Israel um, kind of propagandists just have a lot more resources to do that work than the sort of supporters of the Palestinians. So they do shape, shape the narrative somewhat. But I just, uh, I want to just like kind of... Um, <clears throat> move away from that sort of slightly conspiratorial idea that you know that that not accusing you of conspiratorial, but you know what I mean that that look, some people when you talk about the Israel lobby do get as if it was just like one like little sort of wink wink nudge nudge thing was actually just like, it's just it's a deeper and structural thing. But at the same time, yeah, we can find instances like that where they've run a campaign and it's worked, and that and then builds over time to to make more successful for their next campaign and creates a political culture. That was the first part of my conversation with Hill Aked. To listen to the second half, you can sign up for £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. In part two of the interview, we discuss the so-called labour anti-Semitism crisis, whether the Israel lobby successfully uses identity politics against the left. And um, we go back to our debate about realism and Zionism that we almost got into at the start of the conversation. Again, you can listen to the whole episode and all previous full episodes by signing up at patreon.com 
forward slash crash course pod. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herbman. Patrick Herbman does the sound design.